you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. As one author wrote, talking about the vast expanse, he writes this, quote, The vast distances of interstellar space are unimaginably immense. The nearest stars to us are trillions of miles away. Those large distances have forced astronomers to come up with an appropriate measurement uh, unit. It's called the light year. One light year equals the distance that light travels at, at more than 186,000 miles per second. It travels in one year more than 6 trillion miles. The enormous distance to even the nearest stars presents an interesting possibility. If a star 30 light years away from the earth exploded and died five years ago, we would not be able to tell by looking at it for another 25 years. Though no longer in existence, the light from that star would go on shining as if nothing had changed. That illustration perfectly sums up the situation in many churches. They still shine with the reflected light of a brilliant past. Looking at them from a distance, one might think nothing had changed. Yet the spiritual darkness of false teaching and sinful living has extinguished the light on the inside, though some of their, the, their reputation may still remain. And that's what we find in Sardis. That's exactly what we find in Sardis. A church that had been bright at one time, but now dead. In fact, you can think of 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul tells Timothy that in the last days they, they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Churches can have a form of godliness. Churches can have a form, it looks good on the outside, but they can be dominated by sin, they can be dominated by unbelief, their doctrine can be false, but they still have the resemblance of a good church. And I think that's, again, chapter 3, verse 1. This is what we find in Sardis. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. That are, already, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know the hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who come, overcomes shall be clothed in white garments." And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is, this is by far one of the saddest of the seven churches. Again, a church that looked alive, had the semblance of being alive. Probably people from the community would have said they were alive. But the one who knows all, I know your works, you say you're alive, but you're dead. Let me also remind you as we, we see this, these churches, that, is, that was the characteristic of the church. 
Okay? In other words, when he says they're dead, it doesn't mean that they all had the same characteristic. But if you took the church as a whole, the characteristic of that church in Sardis was that they were dead. And we're going to be looking at all the pieces here in a few moments. So we'll just get right into the text. Again, to the angel of the church at Sardis, this is the commission or this is the church. Again, we don't know much about Sardis. Most likely, it was founded when Paul was at Ephesus. Because again, all the churches were, were uh, uh, quite close together, within 100 miles. Um, again, it's an actual church that was in existence at that time. But also, it represents churches of all of, of, of churches throughout church history for the last 2,000 years. That's why it's important to study these seven churches, because we can see these type of churches even in our society today. You know what's one thing interesting about this church? You don't see any mention of persecution. You don't see any mention of false teachers. Uh, you don't see any uh, mention even of um, false doctrine or corrupt living, although I'm, I'm assuming it's in there. Uh, see, with some of the other churches, they, you know, he'd mentioned uh, uh, Jezebel and the uh, teachings of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam. But here he just pronounces them dead. They, you just are dead. I mean, isn't that sad? Being a church that's dead. Uh, there is a prominent person that we're going to mention at the very end. His, ne- his name was Melito. Uh, he was uh, se- uh, second century... Um, uh, defender of the faith, um, and he wrote a, a defense of Christianity, uh, apolo- uh, apologetics. Uh, again, it's interesting that he, uh, in fact, he also wrote uh, some comments on the book of Revelation. So when, when the book of Revelation was written and then given to the church, and the ch- obviously the church would have kept the, 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 the manuscript, and uh, decades later this man came along and actually made comment on the book of Revelation. So that's the commission. The second uh, part is the city. And I, again, I always find it interesting, uh, these different uh, cities. Again, they're actual cities. This uh, Sardis was 35 miles southeast of Thyatira, or 50 miles east of Smyrna. So again, if you could, yeah, right there's Pat. That, again, I just keep giving you this because I want you to get in context of the Mediterranean. Next slide. And then up here closer, so we've been looking at the churches and literally going Ephesus, you know, going right around Permuth, and then right now Sardis, excuse me. And so uh, 35 miles from uh, Thyatira, 50 miles uh, from Ephesus and Smyrna, basically uh, the route. So again, a real church historically, uh, this was uh, the greatest city of the ancient world in that area. It was founded in 1200 B.C. Uh, by the way, do you have another slide? I think I had one other slide. Yeah, again, uh, this is just, you know, you can see it clearer. And then, you know, that was the postal route. And again, how it probably happened was when uh, John gave the letter, uh, there was probably seven men who uh, accompanied him on the trip excuse me, seven different men, not him, because he stayed at Patmos, but accompanied and went to the different churches, and then they would write their copy. And, um, but historically, it, it was founded in 1200 B.C. It had been one of the greatest, uh, again, cities of the ancient world. It was the capital of a very wealthy kingdom called uh, Lydian. Uh, the most famous king was uh, Croesus. In fact, there's a statement, uh, like a saying, uh, as rich as Croesus. 
the, the idea was he was fabulously wealthy. Is that how you say it? I think. C-R-O-E-S-U-S. Croesus. Anyways, the point is, is he was very wealthy and economically, uh, apparently near, there was a river that they oared uh, gold from. And uh, again, this is where his wealth came. They also were known, uh, they found uh, more, more than 200, uh, um, what did they, I just lost the thought, um, crucibles. Uh, and that would be how you would refine silver and gold, and they made coinage, and this is actually a coin, a gold coin from that era um, that they would uh, have made of a line, I forget, I guess that's a bull. But, a, but again, uh, being the place where they would mint the gold and silver coinage uh, made them very, very wealthy, plus where they were located was the far western point of that particular main route, as far as going to the east, trade route. So it was like a, a key position economically. It became very, very wealthy, uh, not only with gold and silver uh, coinage being minted there, but also with wool production. Uh, they say that dyeing wool was, was uh, refined or was, uh, um, you know, research and development, as it were, at, the, at Sardis. They were the ones that developed dyeing of wool and making garments. And so there was a garment industry there. Again, militarily, uh, the early city, as I said, was started about 1200 B.C. That's 1200 years before the writing of this letter. Uh, the, the main king, the, the, peak of its, uh, the peak of the kingdom was around 600 B.C. So about 600 years later is when you had uh, the very wealthy king and, and the, uh, the very wealthy kingdom. And militarily... And this, this is, a, you know, looking down, literally, at the, and this would have been, and I know this gives you no context, only, I just want to have you see a couple of things. This would have been the original city back then, and again, they had a gymnasium, they had a theater, they had a stadium, but they also had this temple of Artemisius, uh, Artemis, which is Diana, and uh, again, the Acropolis was right there, that would be where the majority of the, the gods would have been. Uh, now, if you turn to the next, what's interesting is this is Diana. This is the temple of uh, Artemis. Um, and if you look, that's, that's the, the, there was a major, um, the walls, they say, are 1,500 feet uh, high, straight. And so around the top where the king would have been, where the major part of the city as far as defense would have been, on top of that mountain, and on three sides for 1,500 feet, there were just sheer walls. The only, place that you, the only way you could access was from the south. Now that's important because it, it, it was presumed to be impregnable. That once you got to that city, you couldn't beat it. You know, any, uh, any armies could have gone against them, but they were going to be safe and secure. Uh, the only thing is, it was such a small area, they actually ended up making another, uh, a second city. And I'm trying to think of the direction. I guess it's down here. Uh, but there was like two cities. One was the one that was impregnable on top of the mountain. The other one was down in the valley at the foot of the mountain. But again... When you, when you live in an impregnable city, what happens to you? You start thinking you're invincible, right? You become overconfident. Uh, you become even lethargic and arrogant. And actually, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened to this city, this king, back in 
560 BC. As one writer wrote, he said this, despite the alleged warning against self-satisfaction by the Greek god whom he consulted, this was the king, this was the the king that was very wealthy. He, he actually went and uh, went to their gods, I'm not talking the true god, and got an oracle. And basically the oracle said, uh, if you go and, uh, against an enemy to the uh, uh, east and you go against them, you will win. And so he looks to the east and he sees the Persian king. And what does this guy do? He goes with his army to seek to... to uh, to defeat the Persian king, Cyrus. Now, you've heard of him, remember? Um, well, he doesn't defeat him. And so he hightails it back to the mount, hundreds of miles back. The only thing is, is the king, Cyrus, decides, you know what? He's a threat. I'm now going after him. <laughs> so the enemy goes after the enemy. And he ends up going, getting into his impregnable... Um, fortress, he was so uh, confident that Cyrus, who was coming with his army, could not uh, scale the walls and all that. He, he basically just put up a, uh, he, just, he just had guards, yeah, right here. Well, yeah, ha, ha, I, go back to the other one if you want. It, it's hard to see where, yeah, it's right here. And so the entrance was there. He, he set up his guards, basically went to sleep. He didn't, even, he didn't even put anybody on the other three sides because he just said there's no way anybody could ever scale the walls. Well, what happened was uh, someone found out that there was just a path going up to that, the top and uh, uh, one footman at a time went up and by morning there was enough to defend the, the Acropolis on top. And so what happened is now the enemy is looking down on the king and ends up getting defeated. He actually is defeated. First time that it ever happened. 300 and some years later, the same exact thing happened with Antiochus the Great. So twice this impregnable city ends up being defeated by an enemy that should never have been able to defeat because of those, those major walls. Now, that's going to, come, going to play into the text in a moment because they were not watchful. That's the key word. They were not alert. They were not vigilant. They were not... They were not watching out for the enemy, just exactly like this city had done and the king had done. He wasn't watchful to the enemy. So again, that's militarily, um, you know, kind of a a, a glimpse of the city. Uh, It actually came under Roman rule in 133 B.C. and a massive earthquake that shook many of these cities back in 17 B.C. That was 17 years before the birth of Christ or thereabouts, uh, decimated Uh, Sardis, Um, they were rebuilt with the finances of the Roman emperor Tiberius, and because of that, he was given, well, I don't have a, this is the, the, uh, as far as religiously, this was the temple of Artemis or Diana, Uh, but there was also a main temple there for the emperor Tiberius because he had given so much money. And so, what do you find in Sardis? You have a main temple of Diana, you have a main point of uh, emperor worship. The other thing as far as religiously, oh, there was a goddess, uh, Sibylle, and you have her. I don't know what she looked like. How did they know what she looked like? You know, I was looking at false idols yesterday on the internet. It's just amazing to me. Like right now in England, there's all these people that get together for these, uh, these cult things on, uh, on, you know, where all those, what are those major rocks called? Stonehenge. Um, 
yeah, all those big rocks. But, you know, it's like, how in the, isn't it amazing to you? It, this is absolutely amazing to me. People that probably have PhDs, people that are in the guild, people that are, you know, you would say are normal people, are out there worshiping the trees and worshiping rocks and worshiping these false, it, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed over thousands of years. The human heart wants to worship. The question is, is it the true God? That's the only question. So in, in uh, Sardis, there's this goddess, Sibele. There's this uh, emperor worship and all this other stuff going on. In fact, they even had real close to Sardis, hot springs, thought to be where the gods, quote, gave life to the dead. Now, again, you put all this together, and what is Jesus? I mean, this is, this is called sovereignty. When he even is using the, the pieces of the city, as far as the history of the city, and he's, he's showing that even the church itself is similar to the city, and able to, because I'm sure when uh, he said, you are dead, and, and that you're not awake and you're not watching, that would have immediately brought these people back. Oh yeah, I remember history. I remember when this city was decimated by Cyrus because the king wasn't watchful with his troops, you know. And God uses um, things in our history even to, uh, uh, to teach us lessons. Uh, one commentator said this, No city in the whole province of Asia had, more, had a more splendid history in the past ages than Sardis. No city of Asia at that time showed more melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay than Sardis. Its history was the exact opposite of Smyrna. Smyrna was dead, and yet Jesus said, yet you're living, you're persecuted, yet you live, and yet Sardis lived and yet was dead. So what a contrast. What a contrast with church, a church that was just a few miles away, really just less than 50 miles well, let's look at the correspondent or, or Christ. That's point number three. Second part of uh, chapter, or verse one, it says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the, and the seven stars. Again, referring to Christ. In each one of these seven churches, remember, it's not John speaking, it's Christ speaking to John, speaking to the church. And he brings up two things about the Lord. First of all, he has the seven spirits of God. Now, seven is completeness. Seven is completeness. So again, as far as the Lord, he's, he's, he's saying the completeness spirit of God. Probably, re, I think he's referring to Isaiah 11, verse 2. You don't have to turn there. But there's seven characteristics of the spirit of God in 11, verse 2. I'll read it for you. It says, the spirit of the Lord. That's the first characteristic, that he's God himself. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's Christ. And the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, that's third. And the counsel, uh, the spirit of counsel and might and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, he'll be deity. Christ himself. The God-man from all eternity. God himself. But he'll have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear. And, and there's a sevenfold characteristic of the Spirit of God. And, and when, when Jesus says, um, him who has the seven spirits of God, again, I think, he's, again he's, I think he's referring back to Isaiah 11, saying, I have full understanding, full knowledge, full wisdom, full everything, the fullness of God. You could, if I didn't write that, you might just, the Spirit's fullness is on the Lord. And that's what he's referring to. 
write down this too. It might be Zechariah 4, verse 6 as well. Because there, the whole chapter, but the one verse that you probably are familiar, familiar with, it says this, not by might, nor by power, what? But by my spirit, says the Lord. So again, Jesus Christ identifies himself as full of the spirit. God himself, full wisdom, he speaks with absolute authority to this church. Let me say this. I'm sure that if anyone was in the church, they would not have given this, they would not have given this commentary to themselves. Right? Yeah, we're living but dead. And I'm sure that even people in the community would not have said, yep, living but dead. Probably even the pastor and the elders of that church would not have said, living but dead. But Christ, the authoritative, uh, with all authority, says, you have a name, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So, why the Spirit, by the way? Why the Spirit of God? In other words, referring back to the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who gives life to the believer, right? I mean, it's the Spirit of God who lives in the believer and leads the believer and produces the fruit of the Spirit in the believer and gives gifts to the Spirit, or gives gifts to the believer and promotes uh, unity in the, in the believer. I mean, everything comes from the Spirit of God. Again, the plan of God through, the, through Jesus Christ, but it's the Spirit of God that gives us, awakens us, gives us the ability to believe, gives us life, is in us, will always be with us, as John 14 talks about. So it's, it's, it's right. In other words, they're dead. Why? Because you need to have the Spirit of God in you if you're going to be alive. And so he speaks authoritatively as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now that, again, refers back to the, the, uh, the pastors. We've seen this in uh, Revelation 1.20 and a couple other times. What is he saying? I have the fullness of the Spirit, and I have control over the leadership. Has and the seven stars. Again, the seven stars are the leaders that Christ has authority over and holds responsible for. And again, as a pastor, as one of the pastors of the church, I, I've just had a weight on my shoulders as I'm going through these seven churches saying, you know what, I have a great, I mean, I have a great day of a, a, accountability before the Lord, a great day of accounting before Christ himself for what happens in this church. Uh, by the way, only what I can do. I can't save people. I can't make people obedient. But I, I have been given a, a part of the responsibility with the other leadership to uh, proclaim truth. Now again, if, if, if I proclaim truth properly and, and let's say someone here doesn't receive it, that's their problem, right? But if I don't proclaim it, it's my problem. And I didn't even believe there's blood on my hands. I didn't used to say that, but no. If you're supposed to be the watchman, if you're supposed to be the proclaimer of truth, you better do it. Because God's holding you accountable. Let's put this into all of our lives. Are you a wife? Are you a husband? Are you a father? A grandmother? A mother? A grandfather? What are you? If you've got truth, you've got to share it, right? This idea, well, you know, I just want an easy life, comfortable. I don't want to upset anybody. You've got the truth. And again, this is to the church, so he's referring to the, the, uh, the leadership, the elders. But do we all, does he have all of us in our, his hands? Yeah. So again, I, I, I trust that you're about Christ's business, 
you know, Christ's purposes here. Uh, this is a great time to say this because we're going to be around a lot of family probably coming up in the next week, right? Easter, resurrection, what a better, what a better, ti- a better time than to, to share what the resurrection is all about, right? Uh, next week we're going to be looking at the, the, the six things that happen because the resurrection is true. It proves many things. I mean, we should be excited about this, right? We serve the only king. We serve the only God of the universe. The only one. Everything else is false. So we need to be about his business. So authoritatively, he has the fullness of God. Let's look at the commendation. I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. By the way, does that sound like a commendation to you? <laughs> no. Actually, there is no commendation in this, in this passage. This is the first church we've come upon where there's no positive. Okay? It's all negative. Well, I shouldn't say all negative. Go down to verse uh, 4. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in, in white. And, all right, they will walk with me in white. The few. If, if there was a positive, that's the only positive right there. Just the few. It's what we call the faithful remnant. Throughout history, throughout the history, not only of the church, but throughout human history, you always find the faithful remnant. You always find the Abrahams. You always find the Isaacs. You always find the Jacob. Well, let's say Israel. You always find the faithful. Usually the faithful amongst a lot who are unfaithful, who are unbelievers. He's talking about the true believers there. So again, the commendation isn't really great. Now, I mean, again, sometimes the commendation was really great. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Well, actually, 2, verse 2. I know your works. This is to the church at Ephesus. Oh, yes, they lost their first love, but I know your works, your labor, your patience. So you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you tested. I mean, I mean, commendation, commendation. Now, this church, you're dead. Oh, there's a few. I know who you are. I love that. I know who you are. I love that, right? See, among us, you know, what is it, 100 some people here? You might be here very religious, maybe not saved. Then there's some here that perhaps are really struggling. Oh, you say you're a believer. Maybe you are, but, uh, you know, you've really been struggling. And boy, if you really looked at your life, you'd say, wow, I'm not even sure. I can't see the fruit of salvation, but perhaps it's there. And then there's some who are just very, very solidly faithful. And by the way, that's how this church plays out. I mean, I think you have all three of these groups. See, as you look at the whole church, they were dead. He gives commandment to some. This is what I want you to do. Apparently, they were saved ones within the church, but were struggling. And then he said, but I know also some who have a few names who are not defiled. And, and I almost see that as a third group. I say almost. I mean, I can't absolutely prove that. But I think that's a third group that you would consider as solid believers walking with Jesus Christ. So you've got... This whole church, and apparently a good part of them weren't even believers. By the way, when we say dead, and I've thought a lot about this this week, you know, sometimes we say a church is dying or dead if they're not evangelistic, or if they don't have a lot of programs, or if they, you know, somehow don't show a lot of love, things like that. I, I believe when he's using the word dead, because he's, uh, he's highlighted who he was, which is uh, the fullness of God, that I think he's talking about the majority of the church were not even believers. 
Oh, they would have had the right creed. They would have said Jesus is God and Jesus came to be my Savior. But they never put their trust and faith in him, relying on him, repented of their sins and turned to Christ. Yeah, they had the right creed, but they didn't have, as it were, the right confession. In other words, they didn't confess Christ. They didn't actually, uh, they had the profession, but not the possession of Christ. And I think that's why he, this is the, the way he gives the counsel. So again, dead, the majority of the churches, or the majority of the Christians in the church were not even believers. How can that be? Well, you get a church and you get second, third generation Christians and they hold to the doctrine, but they just kind of come into the church and they, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, okay, well, let's become a member. And, you know, and, but they've never truly seen themselves as sinners before a holy God, that Christ is the only way and that they needed to repent and believe on him. They just didn't do it. Isn't that sad? I keep saying sad. Isn't it sad if a person sits in a church and uh, ends up not even being a true Christian? My wife keeps rebuking me. John, it's not sad. What would you keep saying to me? It's tragic. It's tragic. Yeah, thank you, honey. <laughs> you know, late at night, 10.30 before we fall in the bed. John, you keep saying it's sad. It's tragic. Well, let's go to the confrontation. Well, let me just say this. If you find yourself there, you know, understanding your need of salvation and understanding Christ is the only way of salvation, the question is, have you put your faith and trust and hope and reliance alone in Him? Like the man, be merciful to me, the sinner. Right? Let's look at the confrontation. I know your works, and I'm going back to the same verse. I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. By the way, what are some of the signs of a dying church? I think these are some of the signs. I'm talking about a dying church that was at one time vibrant, had the gospel right, believers were the ones that were the members, you know what I mean? I mean, they were a solid biblical church. How can you become a dead church? Or let's say this, what do we as even leaders fight against? And we should fight against this, not becoming like this. I think one is focusing on the past. I think, what he's, I think, I think the Lord was referring to that when he said you have a name. You know, like your name, your reputation in the community was this, but you're this. Uh, if a church focuses on the past, primarily, I think you're in the state of dying. You know, this is the way we were, not the way that we are. See, we can learn from the past, but we can't live in it. I think number, number two could be this, devotion to tradition over devotion to Christ. See, sometimes we, we put more emphasis on our creed. Our creed, this is what we believe. By the way, it is very, very important that we believe properly. But sometimes that becomes the overarching thing. The question is not just our creed, but our conduct. In other words, sometimes we believe the right things, but if you look at the person, you'd say, well, they're not living according to those beliefs. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that He is all-powerful. I believe that He is the King coming back. And yet our lives sometimes do not reflect that. You know? worried and fearful and anxious and 
you know, unloving towards one another and not willing to confess him before the world, and yet we say he's king. Third is greater concern with the externals than the internals. Again, the name, that's external. As one pastor said, they have the scaffolding was all there. The scaffolding, you know, you build a, that's all there. And, and he might be referring, by the way, to, because, um, well, now I'm going to get to it in a second. But it might be just the, the pieces of the church. In other words, they worshiped. In fact, you might have gone into that church and you would have seen them worship and they would have prayed and, you know, sang hymns and did the ordinances and they would give and read and preach, but it wasn't real. In other words, when they preached, it wasn't hitting the heart. When they gave, it was out of obligation not to see the gospel go around the world. When they prayed, maybe they believed it. Maybe I just said that. In other words, they were empty shells. I think that's... I think that's part of it. The church becomes, starts to die when they just... You would look at them and say, well, they have all the pieces of a church, but the people are not vibrantly worshiping and, and, and really believing that what God was going to... I mean, that when they prayed that God would, would hear because they were his children and really seeing you know, love uh, being produced in the people. and So more concerned with the externals. Busyness programs, activity becomes the, the, uh, the key rather than transformation and devotion and true character development. See, that's what's really important, but sometimes we just look at, well, we're busy. <laughs> you ever get like that in your Christian life? Just say, not as a church, as an individual. Well, I'm busy. And somehow think, well, I must be alive just because I'm busy. No, no, it's about devotion and transformation and character development. Uh, number four, uh, characteristic compromise with the world. Again, he says that in, chap- in verse four, uh, who have not defiled their garment. They were lo- alive because they, didn't, they were pure, a pure church. Okay. By the way, this is, this is dead orthodoxy right here. This is where, again, the orthodoxy, the creed is correct, but the conduct and the life is not correct. There's not passion and devotion for Christ. So compromise with the world. And then I think another is a closed community. Life breeds life. And yet, uh, I think sometimes uh, when you start seeing churches die, it just becomes us. And we're not reaching out. We're not caring about our neighbors. It's just more self-serving, really. So they had a name, but it wasn't the reality. Or you could say it this way. This church was a morgue with a steeple. Morgue with a steeple. Now, what does a living church look like? Again, love and submission to the word of God. And I don't have time. I actually, I wrote these in your outline simply because if you want to maybe do a little more investigation. But you're going to be submissive to the word. I'm saying us as a church. By the way, each, each of these us here can also be individual. God, if you tell me something, I'll do it. <laughs> a desire to... For God's approval, 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. A servant attitude to the body of Christ. Lord, give me an opportunity to serve one of my brothers or sisters in Christ. That is a privilege that is not um, a hardship. You know, oh, brother, another person needs some money. Another person needs some help. Why did I have to even hear this? Now I just feel a little more guilty about it. No, Vibrant church would say, give us opportunity. We want to, 
give preference to one another, like Romans says. Proclamation of the gospel, again, the good news. Meditation on the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself. Discipleship of believers, you know, I want to have part in that. Emphasis on spiritual leadership, strong spiritual leadership. The pastors of the church, the elders of church, truly being qualified because Timothy says they must be uh, reproducers in prayer and you go on and on. I mean, you know what you really, I can summarize it by saying this. The Spirit of God is working in the church. That's the key. The Spirit of God is working not only in the church, but in the, in, in the majority of the individuals in that church. I, I, st- I had to stop and just say, you know, is that, is that me? Is that us? When I say that the Spirit of God, you know, in majority and characteristic, is working at Alfred Allman, I trust that is. Is the Spirit of God working in your life? Is there a vibrancy? So, let's go to the I'm trying, I got to get here because this is where the wonderful counselor now counsels. He counsels the church. He says, verse 2 be watchful. This is his counsel. This is how a church can have a revival, if you will. This is how a church can have a revival. This is how an individual can have a, a revival. You may find yourself and you say, you know what, I know I'm saved. But boy, I just am making some bad decisions and I just, you know, I'm just, I just feel like I'm dead. In other words, I don't feel like, like the Lord is chasing me, but I'm just not making good decisions. I'm just kind of wandering out there. Now, again, I, 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 be careful. Because when he uses the word dead, he's talking about I believe unbelievers. But sometimes you can look like a dead person. You can act like one. You know, your fruit has been minimized because of sin. There's a lack of commitment. So here's the wonderful counselor, and he's, he's going to give us a five-step plan to get your life back on track. And if you find a church that's dead, to get the church back on track. Let me read the whole thing, verse 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. I mean, these are severe words, right? Jesus Christ takes his church very serious, right? And the church, I trust, is taking Christ very serious. This is, these are serious words. He gets right to the point. Like I said, there really isn't any commendation other than afterwards. In five of the churches, you see, you know, the commendation. And then uh, I want you to work on this. I, I got a concern over here. Here he like goes right to the jugular, you know. First step, wake up. The word means to be constantly alert. Alert. It's in the present tense. It means it always needs to be. It's continuous sense. In other words, continuous tense. You always be watchful. If you find yourself in a backslidden state, then you've got to, first of all, be watchful. This, these are all, all five of these are imperatives. You must do these if you're going to uh, be, have a revival in your own personal life. Be vigilant. Uh, the word watchful is over in First uh, Peter chapter 5 where it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, what? Walks about as a roaring lion wanting to devour, right? So this is like a military term. By the way, what was, what was 
Sardis, not 350 years earlier. Watchful. Oh, the king went up into his castle, and he just said, you know what, actually 600 years earlier, was the king and Cyrus, and they, it's impregnable walls, and they were not watchful, and they were defeated. And I think the Lord is using that word here because he's saying, listen, you've got to be watchful. Or to us Christians, he's saying it this way, do you understand that you are in the war zone? That you can lose territory in your own personal life? I think sometimes we think as a Christian, you, you know, we get historical and we think back on the, on the good days, which by the way, our memories are kind of faulty, but you know, when we were really walking with Jesus and he was stretching us, and you probably were, but then we think that if we kind of backslide, we just stay right there and whenever I repent, I start moving forward. No, no, you can lose ground in your life. We're in a war zone. We have the enemy that is Satan. We have the enemy that is the world and its philosophies and motivations. And we have even an internal enemy called the flesh. And all those point to this. You have to be very watchful in your own life. If you ever take a Christian vacation, you know, a vacation from your Christian life, like, you know what, Lord? uh, And sometimes, by the way, when we go on vacation, we do that. You know, we get out of our routines. We really don't. And then you wonder why we come back and we're like, man, man, I just feel like I've taken two steps back. Well, the war continued on, even though you weren't. The war continued on, even though that you were in neutral. And um, so first, first thing the Lord says and in the imperative, be watchful. Wake up. Second, and strengthen the things which remain. Like what things remain that are ready to die? Now, I think this is the key. For I have... I have I have not found your works perfect before God. In other words, your works are not perfect. Now that word works is being used over and over again to each of the seven churches. I'm just giving you an example. Go back to the previous church, which is chapter 2, verse 18. Um, 2, 18, or actually verse 19. Again, I know your works. Same exact, that word is ergo. Again, here, he uses it twice. He says, I've, I have not found your works perfect. And I think the thing he's saying is this. I want you to strengthen which remain, which are your works. And you might say, well, what are the works? Well, let me give you an example. 2.19, I know your works. Your love and service and faith and patience. And, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. All right, so let's think about these. I think he's also telling the church at Sardis, let's just look at some works. Love, what do you mean? I want you to strengthen your love, love for God, love for each other, your, um, your, your, your sacrificial love. Well, what is the second word there? Uh, not only that, but service. Again, if you love, you serve. Not just that I have love for you, I'm willing to actually do something about it. Faith is faithfulness. And then patience. And as we said last week, um, you know, if you, if you truly love, you're going to serve. And if you're truly faithful, you're going to do it long term, which is patience. And all I'm trying to say is this, you know, because he doesn't specify, but I think within the letters he does specify. When he says, I want you to strengthen what remains, I think he's, he's, he's going back and he's saying, listen, you know the things that you should be doing. You know the love that you should have for me and the love for each other. You know the faithfulness that you should be. You should be dependable. You should be persevering. You should be enduring. And you're letting these things go. I want you to strengthen those. 
That's why I say that this church is not an apostate church. It's an orthodox church, but it's an orthodox church that is no longer watchful. Because if it was an apostate church, he would say this, you're dead and you're just dying. But he says, you still have hope. If you find in your life, let's take you as an individual, ask those two first two questions. Are you watchful? Do you realize that you're in the war zone? And you will be until the day you see Jesus Christ. And second, sometimes we get lackadaisical about the things that we've been given to love and to serve and to be faithful and to persevere and to continue down. Why? Because Ephesians says this, we've been saved, what? For good works. And we forget that. Sometimes we, we just get very uh, uh, selfish. <laughs> we get very self, and it's all about me. I find when I'm starting to walk in the flesh, it's all about me. It's how you can serve me. And here, Jesus is saying, no, strengthen those. What? No, it's not about you. It's about him, and it's about you serving others. So, the externals. Get the externals. Uh, fill the externals with the realities that ought to be there. And I think he's also saying to that church, and when you pray, do it with faith. When you worship, do it with vibrancy. When you, when you hear preaching, like James says, receive the, the, the word. Be willing to be doers, not just hearers only. In other words, uh, when you come to communion, make sure that your lives are, are, um, are, are fessed up, as it were. By the way, we have communion this week. Do you know what time it is? What day it is and what time it is? It is Wednesday at 6 o'clock. No, what is it? <laughs> All right, Thursday at 7. Okay. Third. Remember, Thursday at 7. I purposely tried to trip you up. Okay. Step three, remember. Another imperative. Remember, keep in mind. Call to memory. And you say, what do you mean? Well, he said, remember how you have received and heard. And I I believe he's going back to God and the gospel and the good news and the grace and the mercy that brought you into the family of God, not because of your works, but because of his righteousness and that you're standing in Christ's righteousness. And I'll tell you what, if that cannot revive a heart, you don't understand the gospel. So he says, remember, so much of, uh, in different parts of the, like the Old Testament says, don't forget. In fact, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, he says this. Now this is Peter writing to the churches uh, that his epistle went to. He said this, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. That's past. He said, all this time I've been reminding you, though you... Know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm with you in, in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. That's present tense. Presently. And then finally, verse 15, he says this, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder. Peter tells his churches that he's writing to, I reminded you, I continue to remind you, and I'm going to make sure that when I'm gone, you will still be reminded of the truths of the gospel, of who Christ is and God. It's good to be reminded. It's good to be, remember, Lord, all the things that you have done for me. Lord, I need revival. Be watchful. 
Strengthen what's already there. Remember all that God has done in your life and all that God has done, period. Okay. Number four, hold fast. That's the word keep. Attend carefully to, but the idea is this, obey. When you come across a truth, don't rationalize, obey. Again, Christianity was not simply to inform, but to transform our every thought, word, and deed. Or to ask it this way, how have you, how have you been changed in the last three months? How have you been changed in the last six months or a year? Because it's not just about remembering and doing, going through the motions. It's about transformation. And finally, if there's any issues out there, he says repent. That's the fifth step. Fifth step. And I find it interesting that it's the fifth step, not the first. But you have to go through that process to find out where you really need to repent many times. And the, and the word repent is not in the present tense, the continuous. It's in the it's in the punctiliar, the dot. What I think what he's saying is this, go back, and if you see an area of your life that you are not walking with the Lord in, that specific area, then you need to, in a moment of time, say, Lord, I want to change. In fact, if there was ever a reason to have an altar call, I think it revolves around the word repent. See, most of the Christian life is present tense, continuous. It's hard to, oh, come on up here, and let's face it, you're going to go right back into the world. Just because you walk the aisle doesn't mean that you repented. I mean, that you really changed. But the word repent is in the punctiliar. It might be this, you know what, come to the front, because if you have a, 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 um, an overbearing sin in your life, you need to say, at this moment of time, I want to change direction. I'm going to actually ask, ask you to do that. In a few moments, you don't have to, by the way, you don't have to come forward, but I mean, at the, where you're standing, are you willing to say, you know what, Lord, I want to go in a different direction? That's in the punctiliar. Again, if you don't, he goes back to that word watch. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you. As a thief, by the way, a thief doesn't ever knock on the door. I'm here, can't see who I am because I have a mask on, but I'm going to come in and steal from you. A thief comes unannounced. He's saying, I'm going to come unannounced without warning. And may remove even what you have. I don't believe he's talking about salvation, but the joy that you even could experience is taken away. So again, we have to regularly remind ourselves that we're in constant danger of complacency and compromise. But there's a simple steps that, you know what, if I find myself there, hey, I'm in a war, wake up, strengthen the things that are already there, remember all that God has done for us, and all that he wants to do for us, all that he's done, obey the things that I know to obey, and if I am not obeying, repent. And I tell you what, you will have revival. And a church is able to turn at that point and have revival. Now he says, he who overcomes, again, will have everlasting righteousness. He'll be clothed in white garments that I believe is imputed righteousness. And number two, and I'll not blot out his name from the book of life. And I do not have time to get into that. But I will say this, it's, it's foolish to turn a promise into a threat. There are numerous passages that Jesus even himself said that, you know, that he 
forever will save us. That's why it's eternal. Or in John 10, he said this, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So I believe this is a promise. This is saying, listen, as you walk with me, know that nothing can ever be blotted, your name can never be blotted out of the book of life. Also, this is not the Lamb's book of life necessarily. In a city, they would have what they call a a book of life. And when a person died or were convicted of a criminal charge, their name would be blotted out. You're no longer a citizen. We're not going to recognize you. Or you're dead. You're not even on this earth. He might just be saying this. You don't want to walk with me? To sin unto death. I will take you out of this world. Not as far as your name. But if you want to read... If you want to read that there's a possibility to be, have your name taken out, it might be through death. I'm not talking about eternal death, I'm talking about physical death. But here, if, if you do turn, I'm not going to blot you out. In other words, you're going to stay living. And number three, everlasting loyalty. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The, the question is, did the church turn? We don't know. But I will say this. Remember that guy, Melito, I, I was telling you about? He was an apologist. He wrote some of Revelation. I mean, he wrote some commentary on the Revelation. He was, he was a defender of the faith. He lived in Sardis, and we know that he lived, now catch this, about, uh, I think it was four or five uh, decades, 50, 60 years after this letter was written. Now, this is the point. If he, was, if he was there in the church, writing the defense of Christianity, writing about commentary on Revelation, I think you have to assume that the church was still in existence and perhaps had turned, had gone from death to walking with their Savior once more, that they were a vibrant church again. I mean, I think you can make that assumption, the fact that we know there was a man that wrote a commentary, or pieces of a commentary on Revelation, that they actually heeded the words of their sovereign king. And I find a lot of uh, hope and joy in that, that no matter where we find ourselves as individuals or as a church, we can always come back to the Lord, right? We can always return. The question is, are you willing? Now again, you might say, you know, I'm walking with the Lord. I love my relationship. I am just, I am praising Jesus. But if you find yourself in this other part and saying, you know what? I have been struggling. I have been struggling with sin. I haven't been watchful. I've allowed sin to overtake. I've, I've been asking questions or uh, 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 thinking thoughts and doing actions I ought not, and I have not been uh, repenting. Then this is the moment to do it. This is the time. Because I believe the Lord Jesus Christ wants, if you're a believer in Him, He wants you to walk a vibrant Christian life, not just like, because He wants you to be a witness to Him in the world. So let's stand as we close in prayer. Well, actually, we're going to sing. But if you could hold off on the song for just a moment, what I want you to do is, if you find yourself in that second category, if you find yourself saying, you know, I'm just wandering, I would encourage you to go back and commit yourself to those five verbs. I'm in a war. I need to strengthen. I need to remember. I need to obey. And Lord, this is the one thing. I know you're you're knocking on my heart, and I need to repent. It might be how you're loving your husband or your wife, how you're dealing with a trial, how you're dealing with a personal trial. But Lord, I'm repenting. I'm moving in a different direction. You saved me by grace. Lord, I need to live by grace. And Lord, I am depending on you. I'm turning right now and I'm confessing. 
so that you can sing the song with a pure heart. So hold one second as we just bow your head in prayer and talk to the Lord about your situation. Father, I just ask now that you would allow us to worship you from a heart that is full and that is pure in Jesus' name.